been much talk here in California about our uh, extra wet winter we had. It was not any kind of record-breaking uh, dousing that we received this year, but it was a, a pretty good soaking on the average. And as a result, California's wildflowers are blooming all over the place. Yours truly did make a trip down to the Carrizo Plain, which I believe I first encountered on an episode of Huell Hauser some years back. Huell went down to visit uh, this national monument, famous for its, uh, its spring displays of wildflowers uh, many years ago. And I guess I marked it somewhere on my to-do list. And uh, to-do finally came to the fore uh, this past week. To which I would like to add, dear listener, that if you have contemplated going down to look at California's wildflowers and many locations that are putting on a great display this year, I think you ought to do so. We are currently in the middle of the month of April, and uh, it seems like almost everywhere you go, California is still green, green, green. You might want to do what I've done, which is to get a map of California, you know, a thing made of paper. (laughs) mount the thing and then start checking off areas that you have seen you might be surprised to find that there's wide swaths of of our beautiful state uh, which you have not visited and may wish to do so and and by the way this also works for other states and is equally applicable to other nations we're great advocates of travel on this program and still do plan to bring you uh, in the not too distant future Stan our travel agent Oh, and by the way, I do want to apologize for the fact that uh, I have also, this week, failed to snare us Jeff Von Kanel of the Sacramento News and Review, but uh, I will see if I can't do better next week. While uh, driving around the state of California, I stumbled upon uh, that rarest of entities, a bookstore. This was in the college town of San Luis Obispo, home of California Polytechnic University. I'm pretty sure it's the presence of Cal Poly that uh, kept the Barnes & Noble afloat down there. I used to have one about a mile from my house until Jeff Bezos took care of that. Anyway, roaming through the uh, aisles of the bookstore, I, I saw a book titled Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Teach Us About Ourselves. There was a review of th- this same book in New Scientist, and since I didn't get the book and haven't read it, and may not... I'm going to have to make do with the book review. But I think it's worth taking a stab at it. Noted New Scientist magazine in their culture section, until recently it was heretical for a biologist to argue that animals have a mental life. Because animals can't tell us what they are feeling, most scientists thought it safest to assume that they don't feel much at all, or that their behaviors derive from simple instinct or learning. Emotions, empathy, and intelligence were considered exclusively human traits and were what defined us as human. Many years ago in the deep, dark past, uh, I did obtain a degree at the University of California at Davis in biological sciences. Liked biology, still like biology, and would occasionally stumble into this attitude about, for lack of a better word, I guess, animals' mental life. The author of this book, Franz DeWall, who studied the behavior of primates for more than four decades, always opposed that view. For him, there's never been any question that animals experience the same emotions as humans. For my part, I can't say that I ever had a whole lot of doubt about that. In the book, DeWall asks, why did we go out of our way to deny or deride something so obvious? 
considering how much animals act like us, share our physiological reactions, have the same facial expressions, and possess the same sort of brains, wouldn't it be strange indeed if their internal experiences were radically different? The title of DeWall's book refers to the final reunion between Mama, a dying 58-year-old chimpanzee, and Jan Van Hoof, a 79-year-old biologist who had known her for 40 years. The YouTube video of this event has been watched by more than 10 million people since it was posted in 2016. When she realizes who he is, Mama rouses herself from her lethargy, grins expansively, and embraces Van Hoof. It is hard not to interpret her reaction as joy, and DeWall believes that we are right to do so. Instead of tiptoeing around the emotions, it's time for us to squarely face the degree to which all animals are driven by them. So he writes, Back in 1872, Charles Darwin made a similar point in The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. Despite its initial success, this book was overlooked by scientists for more than a century. Discomforted by Darwin's references to affectionate cats, disappointed chimps, and happy cows, they championed human exceptionalism, the idea that we are cognitively a superior species. As DeWall writes in Mama's Last Hug, this has not only corrupted our understanding of animals, but also of ourselves. The author of the book at some point analyzed thousands of facial expressions among a chimp colony at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Atlanta, Georgia. And he revealed how quickly the animals shift from one emotional state to another. If these traits sound familiar, that is the point. Animal emotions are human emotions, even if some of them are more developed in us. It would be surprising if any of our emotions were uniquely human, given that they arise from changes in the body, and, as DeWall reminds us, all mammalian bodies are essentially the same. Anyway, it appears that perhaps the study of emotions is a new frontier in the science of animal behavior, to which I would say it seems like it's about time. This really has puzzled me for decades. You know, anyone who's had a dog or a cat must plainly see that how they interact with us is not so different from how we interact with each other. Although Mr. Millen does point out that he has no intention of ever sitting on my lap and letting me pet him, which is fine with me. Anyway, I think it is kind of good news to realize, you know, finally, that we are animals and animals are us. What concerns me a great deal more, what concerns me, however, is the possibility that uh, people are out there trying to make robots more like us. Let me quote you this little piece from New Scientist magazine. Under the headline, Deceptive Robot Tells Lies to Regain Our Trust, the article notes, betraying someone and lying about it is pretty low, especially if you're a robot. An experiment on interactions between humans and robots reveals just how easy it is for robots to regain trust by fibbing after a misdeed. The devious robot in question is NAO, a 58-centimeter-high humanoid that moves and interacts with people. Researchers at Yale arranged for 82 people to compete for points against NAO in an asteroid-shooting computer game. In some rounds, a special asteroid blaster was awarded to either the human or NAO. It could be used to get bonus points when shooting an asteroid or for temporarily immobilizing the opponent. Ahead of 10 games played together, the robot promised it wouldn't immobilize the player. But betrayal 
was programmed into its nature. It always broke its promise in round three. To test the best route back from betrayal, the robot framed the immobilization as a mistake with half of the human players. Oh no, I hit the wrong button, it would say. With the other half, it yelled, yes, you're immobilized. Then it either apologized or denied it had broken its promise to the player in each group. People were twice as likely to take revenge by immobilizing the robot in the following round if they thought the robot's betrayal was on purpose rather than an accident. The same was true if NAO simply denied its actions. Yale researcher Sarah Sebo said, Personally, I think robots should be 100% honest and not lie ever. Of course, the results suggest an advantage in lying to a person, but of course, the results suggest that there is an advantage in lying to a person to optimize their trust. Framing a betrayal as incompetence could lead to a robot being treated better by people. Oh no, I hit the wrong button. I know back many decades ago when Isaac Asimov was writing about robots, uh, I, I didn't read his book, I, Robot, but I know there's a code in there that a robot can never hurt a person. And I presume Asimov assumed that we would program robots not to lie. But since this study at Yale suggests that there is an obvious advantage in lying to a person by a robot to optimize the trust of the person in the robot, well, advantages of that seem likely to get programmed into future robot interactions, don't you think? And speaking of robot-human interactions or something akin to that, you may have noticed that Amazon has now admitted that its employees do review a small sample of Alexa audio. Article by Timothy B. Lee on Architecta.com notes that most of the time when you talk to an Amazon Echo device, only Amazon's voice recognition software is listening. But sometimes, Bloomberg reports, a copy of the audio is sent to a human receiver at one of several Amazon offices around the world. The human listens to the audio clip, transcribes it, and adds annotations to help Amazon's algorithms get better. An Amazon spokesman wrote, We take the security and privacy of our customers' personal information seriously. We only annotate an extremely small sample of Alexa voice recordings in order to improve the customer experience. Bloomberg hints at a significant workforce doing this kind of work. Bloomberg says Amazon has employees listening to audio tapes in offices in Boston, Costa Rica, India, and Romania. Employees interpret as many as 1,000 audio clips in a nine-hour shift. The piece notes it's not hard to see why Amazon would want to have some audio clips reviewed by human beings. There's probably no substitute for having a human being listen to clips and verify that the software is interpreting them correctly. But Amazon could have been more explicit about the role of human reviewers. We use your requests to Alexa to train our speech recognition and natural language understanding systems, Amazon says in its frequently asked questions page for Alexa, without mentioning the human element. Amazon told Bloomberg it has strict privacy safeguards in place to prevent misuse of the system. But Bloomberg reports that employees occasionally hear unexpected or extreme audio. In one instance, two workers heard what sounded like a possible sexual assault but were told that it wouldn't be appropriate to intervene. Nice. Employees can discuss what they hear with other employees in an internal chat service. 
and they can share clips they have trouble interpreting, though the report also mentions files being shared simply because they are quote-unquote amusing. Bloomberg says that Apple's Siri also has human helpers. The company points to an Apple privacy white paper that describes how Apple uses audio captured from customer devices. Well, the tech companies are telling us this is, this is you know, not really an issue. Show of hands, who believes them? And another somewhat disturbing news from the tech world, we have this. Apparently just three stickers placed on the ground were enough to confuse the autopilot in a Tesla into moving the car to the wrong side of the road. Tesla's autopilot uses cameras to detect lane markings so that it can position itself on the road. When a team at Keen Security Labs, run by Chinese technology giant Tencert, placed three white stickers on road markings to make a jagged rather than straight edge, the autopilot mistook this as a cue to change position. The hack works because Tesla's front-facing camera can't easily distinguish between the genuine markings on the ground and the white stickers. Tesla told New Scientist that the issue isn't a real-world concern because drivers can easily override autopilot settings and take control of the car themselves. However, others have raised concerns that people often don't fully concentrate on the road once the autopilot has taken over, so may not be ready to intervene. Kind of like the guy that the CHP pulled over on Highway 101 some time back who was asleep as the autopilot was driving his Tesla down the highway. Anyway, Mr. Mimone reports that that's a pretty entertaining video to pull up uh, on the web and check out. Them arresting the guy who was asleep at the wheel. Wait, you say they don't show him being arrested, just the car tooling down the highway? With him asleep, yes. I see. And here's something to think about for the future. Linda Geddes, writing in New Scientist, suggests that we avoid oversharing and asks us to consider your child's legacy next time you post that hilarious picture. The truth is, in this day and age, many children will have a digital footprint before they can walk. Reportedly, 98% of mothers and 89% of fathers report having uploaded photos of their child to Facebook. That's according to a 2012 U.S. study. Concerns about this revolve around two issues. First, safety. According to Australia's e-safety commissions, about half of images shared on pedophilia sites were taken from social media sites. The advice is simple. Don't post photos of your child in a state of undress and avoid images in which their school uniform or location is identifiable. The second issue is consent. What would your child want to see about themselves online in the future? Videos of them mid-temper tantrum may be amusing now, but could be used by bullies. Given that employers often use social networking sites to research candidates, it is also worth considering how they might view such information. Even seemingly innocuous photos may become a source of conflict in the future, depending on your child's disposition or your changing relationship with them. Of course, certain photos are likely to be more problematic than others like an embarrassing birthmark or that time your toddler smeared cat food all over the floor. article notes that many parents value the support that online sharing of parental struggles can bring, but our children may not thank us for it. Anyways, you might have noticed in this program we spend a lot of time whinging about uh, some misuses of our high technology. So at this point I'd like to pull up a piece from the Washington Post titled, Die Robocalls, Die! A How-To Guide to Stop Spanners and Exact Revenge. 
Anyway, article by a Jeffrey Fowler said, we tested six apps and services to find the best way to fight back against bots, telemarketers, and fraud. Let's go through a few of these. Round one was register on the do not call list. They note it won't help much, but it takes 30 seconds, so why not? The list, kept by the Federal Trade Commission, tells legitimate telemarketers not to bother you. It's the equivalent of a no trespassing sign on your lawn. Bonus of this is that it also registers with the government that you care about the issue. It's free to register at donotcall.gov. Round two is to activate your service provider's free protection. Peace notes that phone companies have finally realized that stopping robocalls is an essential part of what we pay them for. The piece notes that you may have heard recently that the biggest carriers pledged to support new network technology with a James Bondian name, Stir Slash Shaken, that will help identify the true origin of calls. That's a good thing to help stop all those spoofed calls, but there's still a lot of work before it might make a noticeable difference. The article asks, you ever get a phone call from a number that looks suspiciously like your own? Well, you can pull up a video out there that explains them and what you should do about them. The piece suggests that, meanwhile, everyone should take advantage of technology the carriers offer to identify and block certain robocalls. AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon offer free services that monitor network activity and crowdsource reports to block suspected fraudulent calls. The carriers outsource these services to Hyatt, First Orion, and TNS, respectively. The piece says, don't worry, they cross-check your contact list to make sure they don't block someone legitimate. One caveat is if your company pays for your phone service, it might have to authorize turning on some of these services. AT&T customers were counseled to download an app called AT&T Call Protect. Verizon customers are advised to download an app called Verizon Call Filter. As for T-Mobile, most T-Mobile customers already have the company's scam ID and scam block service turned on. And round three, get a robocall blocking app. The piece notes if your carrier isn't squashing enough spam, independent apps offer a few tricks of their own. However, they're not all effective, and they might be after the personal data on your phone. Yikes. Fowler notes that I recommend starting with the free U-Mail, which won his robocall speed test. Into this battle, he had thrown four popular apps, Nomo Robo, RoboKiller, TrueCaller, and U-Mail. He spoke with the companies behind them about how they make money and how they handle our privacy. Umail has about 10 million registered users. It sees a scam rotating through many spoof numbers. It knows not to block the numbers that belong to legitimate callers for all of its users. And a coming update will also allow you to automatically block spoof calls designed to look like they're coming from neighbors. Fowler's favorite part is that Umail tries to knock down robocallers into taking you off their list by playing in the beep, beep, beep sound of a deadline. Of course, warning... Warning, Will Robinson, Umail says it makes money through selling a premium voicemail service for businesses and through advertising. But over its 12-year history, it has also run an identity verification data service. The company told the author that it's ending its data business and won't sell user data or share it with others unless it's part of an effort to stop robocalls. Well, again, who do you trust? And finally, we have round four, Get Revenge noting that for some dark times, call for dark measures. The $4 per month robo-killer, which ranked second in his speed test, takes over and fingerprints your voicemails, but adds a clever twist. Answer bots. 
Their voicemail messages that try to keep robots and human telemarketers on the line listening to nonsense. I really do like this one. Answer bot options range from President Trump impersonators and extended coughing sessions to someone doing vocal exercises. Even better, RoboKiller will send you an often hilarious recording of the interaction. Notes it only uses these recordings when it's sure it's a spam call. Another service, Jolly Roger, doesn't sell its robocall blocker, but takes this auto-generated annoyance idea a step further by actively trying to game the spammer's systems, such as when to press 1 to speak to a human. It calls this tech artificial stupidity. It costs $11.88 per year. The piece notes it's possible you're better off not engaging with a robocall in hopes the dialer will decide the line is dead. It's also not clear how much this costs the people placing robocalls. Time robocallers spend with your bot might be minutes they're not calling someone else, so you can think of it as a community service. And you know, we like to have a good news item on this program whenever possible. (laughs) And uh, I think we got one here. It's an article from the East Bay Times earlier this month, which explains to us that after bouncing back in numbers, Groundfish are trying to regain popularity. And yes, you're probably asking at this point, what are groundfish? Well, they're apparently local bottom feeders that encompass over 70 fish species, including cod, sole, rockfish, and flounder. As late as the 1970s and early 80s, groundfish were in high demand. At its peak, the West Coast groundfish fishery was worth about $50 million, according to the Pacific Fishery Management Council. But, notes the article, with the overexpansion of fishing fleets and a lack of conservation efforts, their numbers started to dwindle. By 2000, 10 of the most popular species were completely overfished, leading to a huge slash in revenue and the eventual collapse of the groundfish fishery. The federal government declared it an economic disaster. But thankfully, today, with the help of annual catch limits and a better understanding of the biology of these fish, They are flourishing yet again. But, notes the article, consumer demand for groundfish is struggling to catch up. Fishermen and local organizations alike are working to market these fish as sustainable and a tasty option at restaurant menus and family meals. I was disturbed uh, last week to have a wonderful fish meal in Sausalito and note that unfortunately they had Chilean sea bass on the menu, which is really Patagonian toothfish and is being overfished. It's a worldwide problem, but it's nice to note that there's some good news locally in this area of fishery depletion. The piece in the East Bay Times notes that they've been off the menu for 15 to 20 years, and there are young people who have never eaten or even heard of ground fish. This is from Jana Henning, executive director of Positively Ground Fish, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the West Coast ground fish fishery. Henning notes that consumers are demanding wild-caught, local, and sustainable fish. And groundfish ticks all of those boxes. As of 2017, seven of the ten overfished groundfish species have recovered, according to NOAA. These include dark-blotched rockfish, boccaccio rockfish, canary rockfish, widow rockfish, lingcod, petrali sole, and Pacific whiting. Even better, some of these species were restored ahead of schedule. 
How did this happen, the article asks? Well, most of it can be attributed to catch shares or quotas and the number of fish that fishermen can catch. Fishermen and managers have also taken action by closing large fishing areas to protect ground fish habitat, along with seasonal closures and gear restrictions. Furthermore, there's now a mandate stating that a federal observer must be on every fishing trip to monitor the number of bycatch, or the incidental capture of unwanted fish and other marine creatures. The piece notes that 90% of the seafood that we consume in this country is imported. The market and consumers are expecting a cheap white fish, even though the reality is there is no longer a cheap white fish. Here's a part in the article that surprised me. They note that one of the ground fish that's being promoted is called grenadier, better known as ratfish. (laughs) With an unattractive head and a long tapering tail, there was no demand for this fish because it looks ugly. This caused fishermen to throw it overboard. But, but reportedly, it is a delicious fish. It was a wonderful abundance of protein and was going to waste. Now, schools are demanding this ground fish to add to their cafeteria menus. Drager's Market is stocking petrali sole, rock cod, also known as red snapper, and black cod. They quote a seafood manager saying the numbers were down in the 90s, but now there's an abundance of ground fish because the government stepped up and did a great job. And you know... Once in a while, the government can step up and do a great job, which is a nice thing to contemplate. The piece reports the petrali sole is a very light fish that is easy to prepare with a little bit of olive oil and a bit of flour. I remember going out many years ago, my dad ordering it. I know he liked it, but I confess I am ignorant. But they quote another fish purveyor is noting that his favorite ground fish is sand dab. Now, those I've had, and man, pretty tasty. Of course, the piece does note that the regeneration of the ground fish is coming at a cost to local fishing communities. To address overfishing, the National Marine Fisheries Service implemented a federal buyback program in 2003, which permanently removed 91 fishing vessels and 239 fishing permits from the ground fish fishery and associated crab and pink shrimp fisheries off the coast of California, Oregon, and Washington. Well, what can you do? If you want to have a sustainable fishery, you can't overfish. Seems like a no-brainer. You know, a guy we need to bring back on this show is uh, Dan Bacher. He's got a thing or two to say about California's fisheries. Very knowledgeable individual. He has a number of equally provocative things to say about uh, California's water shenanigans, which are certainly tied up with our fisheries. Speaking of shenanigans, a lot of people have been upset about the swirling controversy of the Mueller report, and it's being held back by America's Attorney General, William Barr. I thought that lawyer Jeffrey Tubin's reaction to this was to throw up his hands and say, well, you know, they didn't find any collusion. But his writing in The New Yorker presents a more nuanced view. Tubin notes that according to Barr, Mueller found no evidence of criminal collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, but he apparently regarded the evidence on obstruction of justice by the president as too ambiguous to make a final call. He adds, what is certain is that Barr took Mueller's equivocating as an invitation to make his own decision to exculpate Trump, adding, the attorney general had no business volunteering such a judgment about investigation he did not conduct. Tugan reminds us that in June of 2018, while he was still a private citizen, Barr, of his own accord, wrote a 19-page memo to senior officials in the Justice Department, asserting that in light of the President Trump's inherent constitutional powers, he could not have obstructed justice. This memo probably played no small part in Trump's decision to choose Barr in the first place. 
Tubin says Barr has now turned his outsider's judgment, which is likely wrong on its merits, into an official vindication of his new boss. Closing with, in all, Barr has taken every possible step to lessen the sting of the Mueller report and so far to block it from view altogether. And in closing, we have this from Andy Borowitz. After putting in what one associated called a hellish all-nighter, Russian President Vladimir Putin is almost finished redacting Robert Mueller's report in time for its release Thursday. Earlier in the week, William Barr submitted the approximately 400-page document to Putin for his approval, but the Russian president was reportedly in a state of disbelief over how much Barr had failed to redact. Assembling a crisis team in the Kremlin, Putin told his associates, put on some coffee, boys. It's going to be a long night. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and you have been listening to Radio Parallax. As always, we welcome your feedback, so feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Radio Parallax.